Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look now at 1 Kings chapters 5 to 7, that you'll please work in us by your spirit so that we can understand what is being said and so we can think hard about how this applies to us. Give us our wisdom as we think and courage as we act. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is not cheap to buy a house in Sydney. Some might say that Melbourne is the most livable city in the world, but housing prices will tell you a different story. In June 2017, the median price of a house sold in Sydney was just over $1 million. In Melbourne, the median price was just over $700,000. Either way, it's a lot of money, but Sydney is way more expensive, 30% more expensive. Why? Well, obviously, people would rather live in Sydney. In fact, it's so expensive to live in Sydney that people say there's a housing crisis. I'm reading from an article in January this year from a website called Talking Lifestyle. Sydney is in the middle of the most intense housing affordability crisis since the end of the Second World War. As it stands today, Sydney is short roughly 100,000 houses. And that sharp lack of supply has contributed towards skyrocketing home values which have priced a generation of would-be home buyers out of the market. Uh, many people can't afford to buy at all. Uh, overall, in Sydney, if you include home units and freestanding houses, the median estimated housing price, according to the Commonwealth Bank at the moment, is $900,000. Uh, the average new loan for an owner-occupier is $440,000. And what that means is that Sydney people are paying a very significant proportion of their income into their mortgages. The Housing Affordability Report, published in December 2015, calculated that Sydney households spend, on average, just over 39% of their income on mortgage repayments. Uh, that's compared to the industry recommendation that you should never spend more than 28% of your monthly income on mortgage repayments. 39%. It's a fair bit, don't you reckon? Uh, in other words, we're spending nearly half of our lives working to earn the money to have our houses. We're spending nearly half our wage on our houses. Our houses that we don't get to spend any time in because we're out spending half our life working in order to be able to afford them. So why do we do it? Why do we go to such extraordinary lengths to own houses in Sydney? Why would we spend nearly half of our working lives paying for these houses, these bricks and mortar, Well, it's part of the so-called Australian dream, isn't it? Australian dream with the house and the picket fence. The, the Australian dream, according to Wikipedia, is, and I quote, a belief that in Australia, home ownership can lead to a better life and is an expression of success and security. A belief that in Australia, home ownership can lead to a better life and is an expression of success and security. I reckon that nails it, don't you? Wikipedia's not always correct. I think it's absolutely right here, though. We think that owning a house will give us the better life that we long for. 
And we think that if we own a nice house, that everyone else will look at us and think how successful we are. And we think that if we can just own our own home, then we will be secure. Better life. An expression of success and security. And and there's something to it. There is something to this. Other people will think you are successful if you own a nice home. And there is security in owning a house, isn't there? Obviously, it means you have somewhere to live. You can't just get thrown out at the whim of a landlord. Uh, It also does bring financial security. Statistically, people who own homes become more wealthy than people who don't. There is something to the great Australian dream. It's good to own a home. It can lead to a better life in some ways. It is an expression of success and security in our culture. But the fact remains, it's going to cost you around about half of your life. Not going to be cheap. In chapter 5 of the book of 1 Kings, King Solomon embarks on a building project. He builds two houses. One house for God, the temple, and one house for himself, the palace. Now, as we come into chapter 5, King Solomon receives an envoy from a powerful king up in the north, Hiram, king of Tyre. And Solomon uses the opportunity of this envoy to kill two birds with one stone. He says, Hiram, can you please provide wood for the temple that I'm going to build? And that way, he gets the temple built, and at the same time, he gets to strengthen his alliance with Hiram. Let's read from chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1. (coughs) When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent envoys to Solomon, because he'd always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there's no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, My men will work with yours and I'll pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I've received the message you sent me and will do all you want in providing the cedar and juniper logs. My men will haul them down from Lebanon to the Mediterranean Sea and I'll float them as rafts by sea to the place you specify. There I'll separate them and you can take them away. And you're to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. In this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and juniper logs he needed and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household in addition to 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil. Solomon continued to do this for Hiram year after year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom, just as he'd promised him. There were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Uh, Next section, the the second section of chapter 5, talks about the the, the workers that Solomon used. Uh, We see that he used conscripted labour, that is, forced labour. It's verse 13 there. King Solomon conscripted labourers from all Israel, 30,000 men. Now, the author doesn't say anything about this now, but later on we find that Solomon's use of forced labour caused quite a bit of resentment, and and we'll see Solomon's son pay the price for it. 
That's chapter 5. Chapter 6, Solomon begins construction of the temple. Chapter 6 and verse 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeb, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. Now we've already read this, uh, verses 2 to 10 describe uh, the outside of the temple. Let me, uh, th- here's a picture that should give you an idea. <coughs> Thanks, Carrot. As you can see, it's a beautiful building. Uh, it's made of stone and cedar. It's got those rooms on the outside. Uh, on the inside, it's, it's 27 metres by 9 metres, which is probably pretty close to this room, isn't it? About 27 metres by 9 metres. So that's, that's around about the size of the, uh, of the temple. But uh, the temple's higher. It's 14 metres high, probably set twice as high as this. Uh, so verse 11, uh, verse 11, God speaks again to Solomon and he gives his verdict on this temple that Solomon is building. He says it's good. It's a place for God to dwell with his people, but notice it doesn't take away from Solomon's responsibility. He must obey God. Verse 11. Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. That's the outside of the temple. Our next section uh, describes the interior of the temple. It's all covered in cedar wood and it's plated over with gold. Thanks, Carrie. We can switch that one off now. It's, it's covered in cedar wood, plated in gold. Uh, we'll get that one in a second. And it's in two sections. Uh, so there's a main hall and there's a smaller area called... Uh, so there's a main hall and there's a smaller area called the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. And you'll notice as we read that the Holy of Holies is in the shape of a cube. Verse 14. Verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, panelling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of juniper. He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long, Uh, The inside of the temple was cedar carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar, no stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide and 20 high. And he overlaid the inside with pure gold and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. Uh, inside the inner sanctuary, you've got a couple of statues of angels. They're in verses 23 to 28. The statues of angels, they're called cherubim. Uh, verses 29 to 30 talks about all kinds of carvings that are in the walls. Uh, 31 to 35 talks about the beautiful doors that are on the temple. And then verse 36 talks about a courtyard in front of the temple. Again, Carrie, can we have a look at this picture? to give us a bit of an idea of the inside of the temple. So you can see two halls. The hall on the right is your main hall section, and then on the, on the left-hand side there is the, the smaller area, the Holy of Holies. Uh, you'll see that you can just see the statues of the angels inside the Holy of Holies over the ark there. Um, can you see carvings all over the walls? You see the beautiful big doors here, even though it's a cross-section. And uh, on, a, on, on the outside here is a courtyard. That's the interior. 
Uh, thanks, Carrie. And so Solomon uh, finishes the temple, and we see that it takes him seven years, seven years, chapter 6 and verse 37. Verse 37. <coughs> the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year of the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished. In all its details, according to its specifications, he had spent seven years building it. Okay, that's the temple building. Uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? Extraordinary, the expense that he's gone to there. It's, it's beautiful on the inside, it's beautiful on the outside. Uh, and the author's going to go on to tell us now about all the amazing, beautiful things that were brought into the temple, all the furnishings and things that were used for the temple. But, but just before he goes on to describe the stuff that comes into the temple, he, he has a little tangent where he describes a, a second house. Uh, this house is uh, it's not a temple for God. This is Solomon's own home. This is Solomon's palace. And you'll just notice that everything about this palace is actually bigger and better than the temple. The temple we've just seen took seven years to build. The palace, we'll see, takes 13 years to build. Uh, the temple was 27 by 9 by 14. The palace is 45 by 23 by 14. Chapter 7 and verse 1. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of Lebanon, the palace of the forest of Lebanon, 100 cubits long, 50 wide and 30 high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. Again, we've already read this section, but through to verse 10, the author describes this, this magnificent palace with a palace for the Pharaoh's daughter and a, a section for the court for, for um, Solomon to judge and, and a palace for himself. It's, it's magnificent. It's beautiful. Uh, then in verse 11, though, we pick up the story and we go back to the temple. Solomon gets a man from Tyre to build things to put in the temple. There are four main things that are built. First, there are a couple of pillars for the front. Uh, they're called Jachin, which means firm, and Boaz, which means strong. Firm and strong, good names for pillars. Uh, second, you've got uh, some uh, basins with stands, kind of wash basins with stands. Third, there's a big bath of water that stands on some carved bulls. And then finally, a whole heap of pots and shovels and bowls. Uh, all of this stuff is for use in the sacrificial system. It's for washing and sacrificing. And it's summarised for us halfway through verse 40. Do you see there on the top of page 529? Top of page 529, verse 40. So, Haram finished all the work he'd undertaken for King Solomon in the Temple of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two net sets of networks decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two sets of networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network decorating the pole-shaped capitals on top of the pillars. That's the pillars. Second, the ten stands with their ten basins. Third, the sea and the twelve bulls under it. And then fourth, the pots, shovels and sprinkling bowls. All these objects that Haram made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were of burnished bronze. Uh, and then the very last section finishes with Solomon putting a whole heap of things uh, into the temple. Firstly, there are, there are a number of things that are replicas of what was in the tabernacle. So the altar and the, the, the bread of the presence and lampstands and so on. And also a whole heap of things that uh, King David had dedicated for the temple as well. Verse 48. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple, the golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floral work and lamps and tongs, the pure gold basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes and censers, and the gold sockets for the doors of the innermost room, the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. 
When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Okay, can you see what's here then in chapters 5 to 7? It's fairly straightforward, isn't it? We're being told about the building of two buildings. Most of it, so the whole first section and the whole last section, is the temple. And then just inserted in the middle is that little section about Solomon's palace. All right, Uh, we know what's there. Question, what does it mean for us? How do we apply this passage to ourselves? Well, as we think about doing that, I want us to reflect on these two buildings. So the, the temple and Solomon's palace. So first, the temple. Now, Solomon's temple, it's, it's beautiful, amazing, pleasing to God. God promises, I'll live among the Israelites in this temple. The, the temple was a place where God could be worshipped. But if you think hard about this temple you'll see that the message that it gives is actually quite mixed. Uh, the way it's built with a courtyard and an intersection and then a most holy place, it's, it's actually meant to keep people out. Uh, only Jewish men can go into that courtyard. Now, archaeologists have discovered a sign. It's not from this temple, it's from the, the, the replacement of it by King Herod later on. But the sign says something along the lines of, uh, it's a sign that was put on the on the. Uh, outside of, the, of this, the, the courtyard, and it says, if you are found inside this courtyard and you're not a circumcised Jewish man, consider yourself dead, basically. Uh, only Jewish men in the courtyard. Uh, in the inner sanctuary, in, in the, uh, the, the, the normal hall of, of the, of the um, temple, only Jewish men who are priests are allowed in. Only priests. And then in the most holy place, that, that golden cube, only one person... Once a year, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, after offering a whole heap of sacrifices and doing all sorts of rituals, is allowed in. Uh, A mate of mine tells the story of how he went to a Presbyterian church on the North Shore many years ago. He he showed up to the the front door and he was wearing T-shirt and shorts and thongs. And the the greeter at the door took one look at him and he said, you're not coming in here dressed like that, mate. Can you imagine what it would be like? To not be allowed in to church. Not because of what you're wearing, but because of who you are. Imagine a sign up the front there. Chatswood Presbyterian Church, visitors not welcome, no entry. I guess we have a sign a little bit like that on our gate just there, I have to admit. But, but what if we had it on the church? What if we had it on the church? No entry. What, what would that be saying to people? What would it be saying to people about how God feels about them? What would it be saying to people about the possibility of them having access to God, of them having relationship with God? That's how it was in the temple. No entry into the presence of God. And then the the second part of chapters 5 to 7, all that stuff that Solomon put into the temple, altars and basins and baths and pots and sprinkling bowls, they're all part of the sacrificial system. A whole heap of the worship in this temple consists of killing animals. Showing up to the temple, don't think church service, think butcher shop. They kill animals to cover the sins of Israel. Imagine if we did that here on a Sunday. You had to show up 
with an animal under your arm, show up and kill it to cover your sin before God. Be a pretty vivid image, don't you reckon? God says that he will dwell among the Israelites in the temple. But a big part of the message of the temple is that you can't come into the presence of God. God is holy. People are sinful. There is no entry to the presence of God. That's why the message of Jesus is so magnificent, isn't it? That's why it is so glorious that as Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, the curtain of the temple was ripped into. Access to God made available. Uh, On the cross, Jesus offered the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice to... Do you remember from John chapter 14? I'm going there to prepare a place for you in the Father's house. Jesus died on that cross as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice to prepare a place for us in the ultimate temple. And so now we, we, we can come into the presence of God. That temple is just a shadow of Jesus. Jesus does what the temple could never do. Through Jesus we can be and we will be in the presence of God. Let me just take a little tangent. I, I think this is something brilliant. A, a brilliant thing about the picture of heaven in the book of Revelation. It's about a year or so since we did the book of Revelation. Remember Revelation chapter 21, where it describes heaven, talks about the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. It describes heaven as a city. And uh, it's it's all covered in gold. But just have a look with me at this next passage on your outline. You see there, just just a verse on the uh, right-hand side, halfway down. An angel in this vision in Revelation 21 measures the city, this gold-covered city. Just have a look. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The city is one big gold-covered cube. Why is that? Has 1 Kings chapter 6 given you the background to understand it? Chapter 6 verse 20 It's the inner sanctuary. The inner sanctuary is a gold-covered cube. That inner sanctuary where God dwelled, that inner sanctuary that no one was allowed in. Now in heaven, the whole city is the inner sanctuary because Jesus does what the temple could never do. He brings us right into the presence of God to see him face-to-face forever. That is brilliant, isn't it? There's Solomon's first building, the temple temple what was the second building solomon's palace now the author does not make any judgments on solomon here it's possible that solomon spent 13 years on his palace and only seven on the temple because he was really diligent with the temple but procrastinated with the palace It's possible that the palace is way bigger than the temple because no one can go in the temple anyway, whereas the palace has got to have lots of... He's got to put his wives in there and all the people and all the people coming into the court. But, you know, the way the passage is put together here, with the palace kind of inserted in an ugly way in the middle of all of this story about the temple, and the way that we're told Solomon spent more time, nearly twice as much time on the palace, and the palace is way bigger, I suspect the author is making a point. 
don't you? Solomon did well to build the temple. Really well. Great job. Good on you, Solomon. Well done. But it seems he might have had a couple of priority issues. Don't you reckon? I mean, sorry, Solomon, if I've misread you completely, but I don't think I'm imagining this. I suspect that it's another one of those hairline fractures that Warren was pointing out to us last week. You remember? All the good stuff, but what are prostitutes doing there? All the good stuff, but why so many horses? Yeah, I think this is another hairline fracture. Just a hint that Solomon is not the ideal king. But once again, where Solomon fails, Jesus succeeds. Solomon spends more time making his own house bigger than God's house, but the Son of Man, can you remember what Jesus said? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In his 100% commitment to serve God, to seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus never even has a house at all. He's a way better king than Solomon. Way better priorities. The perfect king. But I can't help thinking that Solomon has something to teach us. If I haven't imagined it, if it's true that Solomon's got his priorities wrong here, if it's true that he's investing more in his own house than in God's house, I reckon that has something to say about the great Australian dream. I can't help thinking that Solomon has something to say to people who spend 39% of their income on their house. It reminds me a bit of that parable that Jesus told. Do you remember the parable of the, the rich man in Luke chapter 12? Uh, the rich man, he, he works very hard and he, he, he gets himself a nice property portfolio, builds bigger barns and he's got everything that he needs, all the property he wants. And then he says to himself, this is Luke chapter 12 verse 19, I've put it on your outline there. He says, mate, because I reckon he's an Aussie, this guy, mate, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, there is the picture of the great Australian dream fulfilled. I bet he even had picket fence around his house. This is the good life. This is success. This is financial security. The great Australian dream fulfilled. You remember what God says to the man? It's there. God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus concludes, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. I hope that's not us. I hope that's not us striving away, storing up things for ourselves. I hope that's not us, lovely houses on the north shore of Sydney, but no place in the Father's house. Friends, we need to learn from Solomon's poor priorities, if in fact that's what they are. We need to see our real estate for what it is. Yes, it is blessing from God. It's nice to have a house. There's nothing wrong with owning a house. We need to live somewhere. Owning a house might be the best option for you. But we've got to be clear on this. Our houses cannot give us the best life. 
Our houses are not a measure of true success. Our houses cannot bring us any real security. If you think that that is true, Jesus says to you, you fool. Friends, here's how it is. The Australian dream is an idolatrous lie. So let me ask you, have you been fooled by the Australian dream? Has your mortgage taken over your life? Here's a few questions for us to ask ourselves about our mortgages, those of us who have them or those of us who aspire to them. Does your mortgage mean that you are stuck in that job? The one that's causing you to be ungodly, the one that's causing you to work all the time and travel too much? Does your mortgage stop you from looking after your family properly? So busy paying off the mortgage you never see your kids. You don't look after your wife or husband. Does your mortgage stop you from meeting with God's people and encouraging them? A few years ago, a few years ago I was talking to a lady and uh, she said to me, uh, my husband and I have just taken a mortgage and with a completely straight face she said to me, we've decided that until we get the mortgage under control, we've decided to stop all forms of charitable giving. Is your mortgage stopping you from being generous? Does your mortgage dominate your thought life? Do you spend your time meditating on real estate rather than on God's word? Are you all the time in domain or realestate.com or something like that as you dream and plan and scheme? Do you get the issue? Has your house become a higher priority than the father's house? Is that your great aspiration, to own your house? Are you spending more time, more energy, more thought, more money on building your house rather than in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you need to do about it? Well, let me make some stupid suggestions. Suggestions that were just ridiculous in the context of our culture. Maybe for you, you should never buy a house. You should never get Esquire written after your name. You know what Esquire means? Property owner. <laughs> Technically, you're a master. You're not even a mister until you own property. Maybe you should never own property. Or maybe, uh, maybe you do own property and you're really struggling. Maybe you need to reduce your mortgage, downsize. Uh, maybe you need to decrease your in investment portfolio. Sell off the timeshare in whatever it is. Uh, maybe, here's a stupid thing for a minister in Chatswood to say, maybe you need to move to a cheaper area. Does it seem ridiculous to even suggest such things? I suspect our idolatry runs pretty deep here, don't you? I think we are very, our identity is very closely tied up with uh, the kind of house that we want to own. Friends, Jesus is the only one who can bring us into the presence of God. He is the only one who can give us real success, real security, the best life. I believe that's true, don't you? Don't you? Well, then we need to think about our priorities. Whose house are you living for? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to prepare a place for us in your house, the house where there is the best life, the house where there is true success, true security. We pray, Heavenly Father, you would help us to seek first your kingdom, to seek first your house, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to live for him. Help us to be wise in thinking through the stuff of this life. Help us not to make idols of our houses or our things. Help us not to think that they will give us the life we long for. Help us instead to put Jesus as number one and to live for him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.